my personal history, uh, I grew up in the city, I'm 56, when my, uh, when I was 10, I asked my dad if he would let me come with him on the marches against the Vietnam War. So it's been 45 years of uh, uh, resistance for me. My personal uh, commitment to um, engaged social practice started in the 80s. Around the time I went to college, Reagan was elected, and that brought about a shift to the right, as we're going through now. At the time, it started out first being uh, part of the divestiture from South Africa, apartheid movement. And then I wound up uh, protesting in conjunction with CISPIS, which is a group that in the 80s was protesting Reagan's funding of um, death squads in El Salvador and also against his funding of the Contras, which were engaged in an illegal campaign against the Sandinista government in Nicaragua. Reagan's bombing of Libya, and then when Bush came into office, the war Panama, which was insane, protesting that, and then the Gulf War of 91. It's been 45 years. And then to bring it up to date, then there was Zuccotti and Occupy and Black Lives Matter that bring us up to now protests against Trump's ban on refugees from primarily Muslim countries targeting Muslims. It's partially Trump's vile, vile policies and his authoritarian tactics, presidential decrees that are at best quasi-legal and often completely legal. And it's partially the fact that he has brought into power a conglomeration of vile, cutthroat, extremely far-right-wing people like Rex Tillerson, the head of Exxon, who was largely responsible for the creation and disbursement of uh, fake climate-denying science, the overt racist Jeff Sessions, who was nominated for Justice Department, Steve Bannon, the winner, a hate monger and publisher of Breitbart, all of these people I just listed, except for Sessions, worked at Goldman Sachs. And I didn't leave in things like the complete breakdown of our relationship with Mexico. Throw all of that to the side, everything, if you can possibly. <laughs> and then what you have is a president who's essentially gaslighting an entire country. Do you know what gaslighting is? For those of you that don't, it's when a toxic, narcissistic, generally male figure tries to overwrite the perception of reality that somebody else has by continually repeating a lie until people begin to question their own sanity. Goebbels said if you tell people long enough that a square is a circle, they will believe it. Kind of under the belief that that's what's happening to all of us. What do we do? How do we stay sane? And I, I'd like to acknowledge that a lot of my work is one-on-one -on -one working with people who have histories of trauma and PTSD. This president has led to um, so much triggering, so much um, reactivation of early trauma. And so people who are in that experience have to, especially, we all have to come to grips with what 
the right amount of resistance and self-care is appropriate for each of us. In fact, that's probably the dominant theme of tonight's talk, that there is no right amount. Every individual must come to account with what is the appropriate response. And not what is the appropriate response that will feel good right now, but what is the appropriate response that will create feelings of esteem and self-worth over a very long period of time as we look back on our lives. And also at the same time, how do we take care of ourselves no matter how much resistance, how much direct action we choose to uh, engage in? So the first part is sort of a little bit about how much, and the second is about self-care, and then I'll leave the meditation and hopefully uh, you'll come away with something from all this babble. So uh, human beings have uh, guilt and shame circuits that were wired over millions of years, not just humans, but our hominid ancestors lived in tribes, in small collectives, and for the survival of the species, uh, individuals that connected, that came to the rescue and assistance of others that didn't abandon others in times of distress were the ones that actually would have been, uh, would have passed on their genes. That's the best theory of why we have in the right anterior cingulate and uh, fusiform gyrus and mid-temporal connecting. There's a circuit that connects to the dorsal anterior cingulate which activates feelings of shame and guilt when we feel that we are not participating in the betterment of the tribe. They're essentially known as pro-tribal circuits of the right hemisphere. The left hemisphere worries about how am I going to get my stuff? What's in it for me? How am I going to get my shit? The right hemisphere is, wow, how well connected am I? Where are my attachments? Am I a part of a tribe? Do I feel, do I feel a part of? If we don't, Participate if we don't take action in times when other people that uh, we are as global citizens connected with, if we don't take action, then it creates low self-esteem, a nihilistic emptiness. During the times of the collaborationists of the Vichy government in France during the German occupation, <coughs> And during the Russian occupation of Czechoslovakia in 1968, and during the Russian occupation of countries uh, in the Eastern Bloc, people who collaborated with totalitarian regimes always showed spikes in addiction, alcoholism, and suicide. We are not wired to keep our heads down and to pretend nothing is happening. We are not as pack animals, which human beings are, that's how we survive, we are not wired to simply shrug it off and say, well, it doesn't affect me, so I'll be okay. In fact, that leads to negative emotional states, feelings of isolation, and feelings of vulnerability. I was kind of disappointed. I was listening today to an interview with James Hetfield, <laughs> of Metallica because I wanted a break from I was you know churning out my meaningless social media memes and <laughs> said that oh fuck this I'll take a break and sure enough they're interviewing Hetfield and they say so nice new album so let's cut to Trump what do you think about Trump <laughs> <laughs> really 
here too. But he says, well, you know, it doesn't really affect me. I try not to think about politics. I just hang out with my family. I'm like, James, that's not going to sit well over time. You're going you're gonna to wake up one day at, when you realize that you sat and did nothing. Scores of people who were trying to flee essentially one of the worst humanitarian crises in Syria that have been just 400,000 people killed in the last 10 years and people are trying to flee for their lives and he's going to be the one who sat back and said, yeah, well, it didn't really affect We're just not wired to do that. So <laughs> it's towards our benefit that we take action and yet, of course, on the other hand, if we take if we become overly involved, and I've seen this so many times over the last 45 years, where people who became uh, completely uh, immersed in resistance also, on the other hand, struggle with chronic stress, uh, rage, and also what happens is people who become immersed tend to wind up in internecine battles on the left where no one is exactly on the same page as them and therefore <laughs> you shouldn't be here back in the 19 back in 1980 when i was a 20 year old marching against uh the the school my school's uh investment in south africa there would be while we marched there were trotskyists <laughs> marching against us <laughs> we'd see them everywhere and we'd, we'd go why don't you join us we're protesting racism and they'd be like fuck you <laughs> so that's in my view what happens when we don't have enough distance when we don't know how enough perspective when we get completely overly caught up in the world there has to be balance which the Buddha called upekka Upeka is, it started out in Buddhism as the balance to all of the divine abodes, which are the way we refer to compassion, kindness, appreciation, all of the qualities that allow us to interact in a safe way with other people, that allow us to engage. But if we don't even have a check for those qualities, if we don't know when to let go, when to stop trying to rescue the world when we don't if we don't know when is enough and we don't know when to pull back from our investiture in the world and turn inwards and take care of ourselves and let go of our involvement and turn off Facebook for a little while if we don't know how to do that then over time we get what uh, could be charitably called burnout we get pulled into the the toiling waters rather than stay in the ship and pull people into the boat with us. We get pulled into the morass. Balance doesn't need to be created by going on lengthy spiritual retreats. Uh, it can actually be simply established in a couple of practices that I will talk about in a little while. The first to the question of what amount of engagement is right for me um, the Buddha refused to proselytize. He never also 
when he met with cutthroat kings and vile, vile, horrible merchants, and he taught really horrific people, but when he taught them, he would generally refrain from telling them what to do. He would wait until they asked questions, and even then you'd have to ask the Buddha three times before he would venture to say, ah, well, what you doing is kind of fucked, dude. The famous story of the soldier came to the Buddha. This soldier had killed thousands in various campaigns. He was a mercenary. And he goes to the Buddha and he says, so what do you think is the outcome of these actions that I've done? And the Buddha goes, mm. he goes, come on, you can tell me. And the Buddha goes, mm. <coughs> and the soldier goes, well, come on. Once you ask the Buddha three times, he's got to come clean and let you know what he thinks. And the Buddha says, I think you're kind of fucked, basically. I mean, he doesn't say that. You're going to an, a psychological hell realm because you've been engaged in harm and the mind of people that causes harm winds up miserable. You have to uh, live with all that emotional distress that you've caused and will uh, eventually be activating negative emotions in you. But the Buddha didn't tell anyone you have to practice this amount or that amount. He recommended for people who wanted to be happy an eightfold path. But at no point does the Buddha say this amount. For each individual, we have to come up with an authentic response. I've always felt that the Buddha's attitude was rather similar to the existentialists. Existentialists, just like the Buddha, had a great belief that our long-term peace of mind and happiness was determined by the quality of our choices. But they also believed that if our choices were being made by other people, that we weren't going to reap the benefits, and that the core of any authentic response to tyranny started by, one, reflecting and making a choice through free will, which means not being completely influenced by anyone else, but reflecting to ourselves, what is the appropriate response for me in this given situation? The existentialist taught that rebellion is not authentic. To simply rebel for the sake of rebelling, to simply, uh, we might loathe and detest Trump, but to simply protest simply based on rebellion without reflecting on what is the appropriate response is not authentic. On the same, or, or the mirroring, though, teaching of the existentialists is that the ordinary accommodationist, opportunist response of not acting is not authentic either. So what is authentic? It's a choice that we make from a perspective that transcends the preoccupation with essentially what makes our life easier, but is sustainable over time as well. In other words, when we look back in the future on today, if we ask ourselves, how 
do I feel good about the way I responded? Do I feel good about the way I acted in that time? That's a perspective that transcends the narrow confines of the financial pressures, the other concerns about self, uh, you know, uh, achievements. When we ask ourselves, how will I look back at this time from a, from a different perspective? than just the narrow perspective I'm in right now. To be authentic means we must be willing to face criticism and rejection. Other people might think that we're doing too much or too little. That's their problem. For each of us, we have to discern what is the appropriate response. And in Buddhism, that's called marana sati. The Buddha frequently taught the five reflections that help us make big choices in our life. The five reflections are reminding ourselves each day, I am of the nature to grow old, to become sick, to die. All that is dear to me I will be separated from. And all of my happiness and suffering is authored by the quality of my choices and my actions. This is the perspective that we are asked to reflect from. I'll teach in the meditation partially the Marana Sati and also the uh, Sila Nusati, which is another reflection the Buddha offered, which is as we look back on our lives, which are the actions that we feel the most proud of today? And then let that be our guide as we ask ourselves how much and how should I turn towards and embrace this time that we're living in. Again, up to each of us. So let's talk a little bit about self-care. In times like this, uh, when there is a narcissistic bully in charge of uh, the country, which is so triggering for so many of us, and I, I can't explain how important it is to connect with a community of people that are like-minded. The left hemisphere, your conscious circuits, which guide you through your day-to-day -day lives and which prioritize making money, uh, getting all your responsibilities done, it will not know how important it is for each of us to connect and sit together. But when we gather around people that are safe, it activates the right dorsal anterior cingulate in the brain, which turns off the amygdala, and it activates the parts of the brain that create impulse control. In other words, put it in layman's terms, we become less fearful, less alone, less frightened. We feel more capable of making wise choices. But that is something that you can't talk yourself into. You cannot tell yourself that you're safe. You cannot tell yourself that you are protected. You have to do it. You have to connect. Where you connect is entirely up to you. And in fact, I don't think that Buddhist communities are any superior than any other community. Connect with Quakers. Connect with... <laughs> Hindus, connect with a 12-step group, connect with people that you feel safe with. But when you do that, it's not about you go to them and they give you smart ideas. 
what it does is it creates a feeling of security. It creates a refuge. And it, when we keep our fear, our anxiety, our concern internal, it can seem very real. But when we talk aloud to each other, suddenly in disclosure and in the exchange of uh, vulnerable emotional expression, we can hear what is pure fear and what is and what is a real uh, concern. We don't have any clue how real our fears are until we speak them aloud. That's why it's so easy when we wind up in periods of isolation in our life, we can spiral out of control. We can wind up deeply activated, paranoid, because we don't have the opportunity to express aloud the fears or concerns that we have. So connection is the single most important tool. The second is self-care rituals throughout the day, which I uh, are something I've adapted from the continuity of mindfulness we teach at our retreats, which is before every new meeting or every new engagement, take 60 seconds, 90 seconds to do a check-in the fast circuits of our brains activate stress and emotion in the body well before we become aware of it cognitively. We can carry around a significant amount of stress before it breaks through into awareness. Generally, it takes a panic attack or an anxiety attack before most of us will become aware that we've been carrying around a lot of stress because we're so caught up in the to-do lists, the schedules, the busyness, the appointments, we're so divorced from our bodies that by the time we become aware that we're hyperventilating, that our shoulders are touching our ears, that our stomachs are tight, that we're, that the hair in the back of our neck is standing up, that our minds are bouncing about from one thing to another, that the brain has released massive amounts of cortisol, that we're no longer sending blood to our digestive systems, but to our outer limbs. By the time we become aware of that, it's too late. By that time, it takes a good half hour to diminish the cortisol. But if you catch it, if you develop throughout the day these mini 60-second check-ins where we just go, okay, 20 seconds, how's my breath? Is my in-breath deep? Is my out-breath twice as long as my in-breath? Is my shoulders drop down, is my belly soft, are my, what is the state of the muscles in my face, is my jaw locked, are the micro muscles around my eyes contracted. Just a minute of that done on a regular basis can help us catch and help us address mounting stress throughout the day. It's one of the most effective self-care tools we have in our vocabulary. A second self-care ritual is the end of the day uh, change of perspective. Many people tell me that uh, quite proudly that they meditate in the morning and that's fine but I've found that the most efficient, the most effective meditation for me is after work is done. And transitioning from the perspective of the person who 
uh, is in the world who's got to put out fires, address issues, follow information, answer emails, has to be accountable, has to take care of shit. That's perspective number one. And then there's perspective number two that many of us don't spend anywhere near enough time in, which is the, we'll call it the James Hetfield perspective, <laughs> which is I don't have to be involved anymore. I can pull back, I can bring my awareness internally, I can relax, I can let go, I can now not have to fix, adjust, solve, take care of, I don't have to do anything anymore. And that transition doesn't mean we live in the second. We spend most of our days in the, I care about the world. I care about other people. I care about the, what is happening. But then there's a time where we pull back and we are willing to say, I've done enough. This is equanimity in action. This is upeka in action. This is where we say, okay, I've now extended what effort I can, and now I'm going to take care of my body, my emotion. I'm going to check in with my emotions. I'm going to uh, engage in self-soothing. For me, it looks like this. I, when I'm done with work, I set about 40 minutes aside. I have my meditation timer. I start out with a relaxing the breath and body, and then I bring up the most disturbing or challenging image from the day. I hold it in my mind. I ask myself, what do I need to feel? I pay attention to the somatic expression of emotions in my body. I stay there with it, and I talk to that, for lack of a better term, that inner child that's terrified or that's angry or upset, and I create a safe space for it where I soothe it and console it. And then for the rest of the day, then I do self-soothing stuff. I do yoga, I eat, I, I watch my favorite completely needless British mystery <laughs> shows, and that's it. If you want to reach me, I'm no longer available. And then the next day, I'm back in the world. And if I do that, I can still sit here at 56 without having lost my fucking mind. <laughs> and my work is day in and day out, talking with people who are going through emotional stuff in their life. And this is what allows me to be of service and to also take care of myself. Three, gratitude versus hope. I hear a lot of people talk about how you got to have hope. You gotta have hope. You gotta help, right? You gotta have hope. <laughs> I don't want to do a shtick against hope. I mean, it's fine. <laughs> but hope is something that is a kind of self-brainwashing very often that leads to a defense mechanism called fantasizing. I cannot guarantee to any of you that anything in your life will get better immediately or anytime soon. But I can guarantee you that whatever it is that you're worried about right now will no longer be on your mind six months from now. Whatever it is. In my experience, as I look back, virtually everything in my life that I would get caught up on, get bent out of shape, get 
uh, activated by would change, would replace the people I would be furious, the issues I would be concerned with. And sure, I bet I'll still be pissed off about Trump in a year from now, but it will be on a different issue. <laughs> Gratitude is rather than reflecting on hoping that or visualizing uh, that in the future there'll be this happy place or that where everything will become uh, easier. Gratitude is reflecting on all of the people that have been kind and generous to us. Gratitude for all of the skillful endeavors that we've undertaken. Gratitude and reflection on all of the issues in our lives we've addressed in the past. We generally tend to get very worked up about challenges in our own life and in the world, and then we forget the things that have happened that address those issues. So rather than put a kind of blind faith that things will work out, I think it's far more effective to reflect on our lives and locate all of the times we've addressed difficult, big challenges, we've made big changes, and we've not only survived, but we've thrived. Anger versus <coughs> hatred, number four. In my experience, engaged social practice is well sustained by feeling anger and is almost invariably undermined by hatred. Anger is an energy in the body that is the fuel, the engine of resisting injustice. Anger is that feeling of this will not stand. And it's that thing that when we feel it, and when we connect with it, and when we give it a safe space, and we process it, then it gives us the determination to say, I'm not going to let this pass. I'm going to set boundaries in my life. I'm going to say no to the abuses by people in power. Hatred, though, is a story about specific groups or individuals. Hatred is easier for the left hemisphere because the left hemisphere thrives on hatred, not anger, which is an emotional experience of the right hemisphere. Hatred is a left hemispheric story about certain people, certain groups are terrible and deserve to be gotten rid of, or whatever. It's something that demonizes, that vilifies specific individuals. And even though, sure, I can talk shit about Trump and Pence and... Uh, Mike Ryan and all those creepy people like the best, but I find that if I let my engaged practice be uh, taken over by hatred, I've seen it happen again and again and again. What happens is uh, it leads to essentially people that flame out very quickly. Anger, though, is something that can sustain not just love, not just compassion. Yes, those do help enormously, but anger can be a useful, completely natural emotion that when we learn to feel it in the body, we learn to harness it, and then we allow, after we've processed it, to ask ourselves, what can I do? Then anger can continually fuel and give us the energy to push back. Personally, and this is my own point of view, 
I do not think that black block anarchist tactics that punch Nazis or smash windows for me is a solution because I believe that any form of violence is invariably used by right-wing forces to justify increasing um, demolishments of rights and safeguards. For every window or storefront that gets smashed, the amount of people that are innocent that get arrested and kept in prison go up. In my experience, no matter how much violence is foisted upon us, any form of violence in return invariably backfires. Of course, I'm a lifelong Buddhist, so this is just my point of view, and I totally understand that there are people that feel very differently. There was a woman who wrote a piece in The Nation that said the Nazi punchers are... are what did they say? I don't remember. But essentially she said they were saints. <laughs> and that's fine. That's her opinion. And she has every right to it. I personally do not believe in violence. Finally, appropriate meta. It is useful to practice at times when we find that hatred or disgust or the, the, the amount of anger that we feel towards people who are abusing power is so great that it's destabilizing. Meta practice is useful, but meta practice, as it's often taught, is to me very unrealistic. Meta is the practice of wishing goodwill, even for people we view as enemies, and it helps us put aside thoughts of people that we're uh, deeply um, disturbed by, unhappy with. Many people teach Meta as visualize Dick Cheney smiling, <laughs> happy, and okay. Uh, however, as the the monk Tan Jeff has noted, that's actually not what the Buddha taught. The Buddha taught that if we are confronted by people who are ignorant or bullying or um, harmful, when we are safely away from them, and once we felt the anger and we processed it, the meta practice is simply sending the thought, hoping that they will see how much suffering that they are causing and that they will stop causing suffering so that not only other people will be able to live in peace, so that they also will experience some peace. But it's not a wishy-washy, I want you to be happy. Uh, it's, I want you to see the amount of suffering you're causing yourself and other people. I really want that for you so that you'll change. I don't want to punish you. I just want you to see the amount of, of suffering that you're causing. So um, that's just some thoughts. I hope that there was something worthwhile in there. Uh, now I'm going to lead us through a meditation which will hopefully encapsulate both self-care and also um, processing... What is the right response for us? So, comfortable seated position. Eyes closed or look at the ground in front of you. 
balance in the body, which means just while your eyes are closed, do a little tilting back, forward, to the side, just for a moment. Don't slam against your neighbor. Just a little tilting. See then, feel what feels like good balance. For the first part of this meditation, set an intention to try to let go of any images you have of yourself that are visual, and instead to feel into the body, feel the sensations rather than um, visualize. Don't just see when there's a, uh, an image in your mind and just allow it to be there, but really focus on the felt body, the sensory body, the somatic body. So let's start out by doing uh, what I described as the 60-second check-in, which is just simply take a nice full breath in through the nose, lift your shoulders up if you'd like, like you're trying to touch your ears, hold the shoulders up for a while, and then breathe out and drop the shoulders down, and just like they weigh two tongues, let them just relax there. And then let's take another deep, full in-breath in and hold it. And tighten the belly, tighten the belly, tighten the belly, tighten the belly, tighten the belly. And then release the belly, soften the belly. And now let's, with a third in-breath, tighten the muscles of the face and any other muscle groups you like, fists, toes, arms, buttocks, back of the neck, tighten, tighten, tighten. And then breathe out, soften. When we do that, we're addressing all of the core areas that the brainstem and midbrain activate as part of the sympathetic nervous system to uh, create, essentially, stress states. Now let's take a moment to survey the body and just note if there's anything that you can without too much effort, make softer, make less stressful, if there's any tension you can release, I'm noting if there's clothing that's too tight. Noting if your legs are comfortable or if you need to reposition them. So we'll start with a little self-soothing breath work. Bring your awareness into the center of the forehead and imagine what it would feel like if you could breathe in through that area and then as you breathe out, just feel a flow of 
warm, easeful energy going down your body, relaxing the shoulders, the chest, the belly. But breathe in again through the forehead, just feeling the forehead as you breathe in, and then breathing out as the out-breath occurs, relaxing all the muscles down the body. And we can now breathe in through the left eye, feel the breath in the micro-muscles around the eye and the forehead, and then as we breathe out, relaxing that area and all the way around that region and down the body. Breathing in through the right eye, softening the micro-muscles, and then as we relax, breathing out, softening all the muscles down like a shower of warm awareness that relaxes everything in its path. Breathing in the center between the eyes, relaxing with the out-breath, and now just move around your body however you'd like, breathing in and then a long, smooth out-breath, easily twice as long as the in, relaxing either that area or the entire breathing body. If there is any thought you need to have in your mind, just let it be what kind of breath would feel really good right now. If you find your mind drifting away from the breath and the felt sensations of the body, don't add any criticism or any judgment. When you wake to the fact you've drifted away, just acknowledge whatever thought it was that pulled you away. And just know to remind yourself that that thought doesn't want you right now to develop any soothing or calmness. Which doesn't mean it's a wrong thought, but just it's a thought we put aside for a while. You just have an overall feeling of patience and 
a feeling of appreciation of the virtue of your practice, it's not easy to maintain inner awareness. We've trained ourselves for so much of our lives to get caught up in thoughts in the world around us, to focus inward on the sensory body. It's a matter of practice and care. When the Buddha achieved his enlightenment, and he was preparing to turn his back on the lifestyles associated with the consumer materialist approach to trying to acquire and accumulate happiness, and instead he was going to try to achieve lasting peace of mind through harmless interactions with other beings and through inner awareness. A figure called Mara approached the Buddha who was the representation of all that is materialist, all that is enamored with short-term sensual pleasures, acquiring addictive substances. And Mara said to the Buddha, by what right do you have to turn your back on the world's pleasures, all the consuming habits of those around you? What right do you have to provide a new way, what gives you this right to teach a new path 
And the Buddha put one hand on his heart, and he put one hand on the earth, and he said, by this right, by the right that I am of this earth. So if you'd like to do that, you can. Put one hand to your heart, and one either on the ground or on your leg. By this right, I have every authority I need, not just to take care of myself, but to take care of those that are suffering around me, to resist, to fight, to join, to say no. As a citizen of this planet, I have this right. And just relax in your hands and let them go where it feels comfortable. Reconnecting with the breath. And this time let's bring an entirely different reflection in. Knowing that I am of the nature to grow old, to become sick, to die, and to be separated from that which I love. Knowing that this breath one day will weaken. Knowing one day this body will no longer breathe. No longer live. Knowing that this body too will perish. as we feel the breath, knowing that it will fade over time. Faced with this deepest of all truths, knowing my vulnerability What actions in my life have I authored that I am now most proud of? What have I done in my life that I feel the most connected with, the greatest sense of esteem, not pride in a vain sense, just pride in a sense of worthiness? What actions have I taken that I would most want others to know if I was going to present my best side. Perhaps bringing to mind the those in our care we've protected and loved, those in our lives we've seek intimacy with and care, and those times that at some expense to ourselves and at some effort we have put down what was easy 
and we addressed the needless suffering and pain going on in the world around us. What times in our life did we do too much? Did we overextend ourselves? Did we try to heal too much? Bring those to mind, those times where we were too caught up in the suffering of others. bring to mind those periods of our lives that we now wish that we had been involved with others in confronting injustice, in confronting the abuse of power. Doing this practice without any sense of self-blame, any sense of shame, just acknowledging No self-criticism, just wanting ourselves in the future to look back on this time and feel it was one of our best moments. We'll finally put aside the awareness of mortality in the breath, acknowledging if there's anything that was worth reflecting on in the future. And then finally, bring to mind an image of yourself much younger, much more vulnerable, overwhelmed, scared of taking care of itself by confronting parents, teachers, figures of authority that were in any way unskillful. There's times in our life in the past that due to our family systems, our environments, it was impossible to stand up and say, this shall not pass in whatever way we could say. We've all had times when we felt too vulnerable to stand up against power. So find that inner child that's still there, that's still terrified, and see if you can feel it somewhere in the stomach or in your chest or in your throat. We all carry that fear, that sense of powerlessness from childhood into our adult life. It's still there in all of us. And just see if you can with kindness, just assure this part of ourselves that doesn't feel it can accomplish or change or stand up.
I will take care of you. It's different now. I'm not powerless anymore. Those who are bullying, who are creating so much injustice in the world, they may have power, but they are not my parent. I can stand against this however much I need to. So, we're reaching the end of the practice. Before you open your eyes, when you hear the sound of the bowl, just take a little while to look down at the ground in front of you integrating sight rather than allowing sight to take over your awareness. It's so important to bring awareness of the body with us into the rest of the evening. Awareness of the breath, awareness of body, awareness of emotions and feelings. An integrated awareness is an awareness that is so much more powerful and wise than just aligning with a very small part of the brain associated with inner chatter. 